Today's uh, scripture reading is from uh, Genesis 46, 1 to 7. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Bathsheba and offered sacrifice to the God of his father, father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set forth from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob as their father, their little ones and their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offsprings, offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. This is the word of God. Good afternoon, and Hope. It is really wonderful to see all of you once again. I'm going to invite you to pray with me before we jump into this passage. Father, we have gathered in your presence as your people in the name of Jesus Christ. And we have gathered to worship you in the power of your spirit who you have given to dwell with us and in us by grace. We thank you for your presence with us this morning and we ask this afternoon and we ask that you would make your presence known to us, Lord, felt by us so that we would uh, affirm and know with full confidence that you are with us, empowering us to receive your word, to deliver your word, to believe your word and to respond in faith to it. Be our help. Be our guide. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. We are nearing the end of the story of Joseph and his family. The words that Wing just read begin what we're calling episode 9. It starts in Genesis 46. And the focus of this episode shifts away from Joseph to his father, Jacob. Joseph is in here, he's in the story, but at the center is this man, Jacob, this old man, the patriarch of this family, this family that was chosen by God centuries earlier when God came to a man named Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, and told him, that he would do great things in him and for him. This old man, Jacob, is about to be reunited with his long-lost son. So when we encounter Jacob at the end of chapter 45, actually, if we go back a little bit, we see that Jacob's an old, broken man at this point. I don't mean broken physically, I mean emotionally, spiritually, He's been weighed down with grief for over 20 years. Consider that. His favorite son, Joseph, has been gone that long. As far as he knows, Joseph is dead. As far as he knows, that beloved 17-year-old boy 
was mauled to death by wild animals, died a tragic and horrific death. And to, and to make it worse, as far as Jacob knows, the boy was killed carrying out a task for his father. Jacob had sent his son Joseph out to check on his brothers. He sent him about 50 miles from home, and he never returned. And there's no doubt in my mind that this old man carries a heavy burden of regret and guilt over that. As a father, I, I can't begin to imagine the weight of that. If my child were hurt or, or lost, carrying out a job that I sent them out to do. Maybe something that they had reservations about, but I said, oh, go, come on, do it. Do what I asked you. Imagine the torment in Jacob's mind. Imagine the questions he might have asked himself. Why did I send Joseph? He was only a boy. Why did I send him so far from home? And, and he's had 20 plus years to play back that choice in his head. To, to think about how things would be different if he had made a different choice. And now this elderly man finds himself living through a famine. He's facing the possibility that he and his entire family may starve to death. But at the end of chapter 45, Jacob receives this shocking news. He hears that his beloved son, Joseph, isn't dead after all. His, his other 11 sons come back from Egypt. They've just returned. And, and look what it says in chapter 45, verse 26. It says, and they told Joseph, they told him, Joseph is still alive. And he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. It says his heart became numb. You see that word there? Numb? Literally, it means his heart stopped. It, we, he's going into shock here. He physically, his body shuts down. But let's continue reading of verse 27. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel, and Israel, by the way, is just another name for Jacob, same person. He said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Not only do these sons tell him that Joseph is still alive and, and that now he's a ruler, but they tell him that Joseph has called him, Jacob, and his entire family to come up to Egypt where they're going to be fed, where they're going to be provided for, where they're going to live as a reunited family. And the way that Jacob responds to this is pretty astounding. He comes out of this coma of sorts, but there's no celebration. There's no sense that he's joyful or he's jumping up and down or he's rejoicing. This is the response of a man who has been through so much suffering. He is tired. He is broken. All he says is, I will go and see my son before I die. You see, again and again, Jacob keeps referring to his own death. And that tells you a lot about where he is emotionally. 
He's battered and worn down. He's ready to die now. And that's where chapter 46, episode 9, picks up. And as sad as Jacob's state is, what we're going to find as we, as, we, as we look at this here today is that what we have here is really the story, a story that comforts. It's a comforting story. It's a story that's meant to strengthen God's people. That means new hope. This is, this narrative, it was written and it was preserved for thousands of years to comfort and strengthen you. Because in this story, God is telling you that he was present with Israel and he would keep every promise that he had made to Israel. And in this story, God is telling you, New Hope, that he's present with you. And that he will keep every single promise that he has made to you. This episode is set up, for the most part, in in three meetings or three encounters. First, Jacob encounters God. Then, Jacob encounters Joseph, his son. And then, Jacob encounters Pharaoh. Three encounters. And each of these encounters is meant to show us this, that God, listen, that God is present with his people wherever they go. He has promised this to you, New Hope. He is present. He is with you wherever you go. I don't think we believe that the way God wants us to believe it. I mean, we know it. It's back there. We've certainly heard it as we've read through the story already in previous weeks. But we don't believe it the way God wants us to believe it. And as a result of that, we're very fearful at times. At times, anxiety fills our minds. And at times, I think that that we don't, it's not just that we don't believe this, we don't even grasp why it matters. We give very little thought to the presence of God sometimes. We, we, We give very little attention to the fact that God is with us. In fact, we live as if he's not present at all. We live as if we're on our own. And we feel that if he is present, what difference does that really make? That's why God has given his people this history. In part, it's to show us. It's to show us the reality of his presence and the significance of his presence with us. So let's look. We're going to look at each of these three encounters. We're going to spend most of the time on the first encounter, and then we're just going to breeze through the the second and the third. So the first encounter, it's the encounter with God himself. Look at chapter 46, verse 1. It says, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba, and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. So on the way to Egypt, Jacob, by the way, is with his whole clan. He's got everything that they own, picked up all of it, and Israel, a.k.a. Jacob, he stops in Beersheba on the way. And this pause in Beersheba really matters because this is the very same place that his dad, Isaac, once encountered God too. He's going to meet with God in the very same place that his dad once came face to face with his God. Look, if we look all the way back in Genesis 26, Genesis 26 and uh, verse 23. 
It says there, from there Isaac went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and will multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So Isaac built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Jacob goes to this very same place where Isaac had met with God and had worshipped God by sacrificing to him. Jacob goes to that place and he sacrifices. He worships the Lord too. The God of his father. And look at what happens. Chapter 46, verse 2. We should have a slide for this. I hope. Um, Verse 2. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, And he said, here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. You see, God's words to Jacob are very similar to what he said to Isaac a century or so before. God's repeating himself in some sense here. He visits Jacob in this night vision, the same way he visited Isaac in the middle of the night in this vision. And what does he say? He says, do not be afraid. Fear not. Now, think about this. When do you tell someone, don't be scared? It's when they're scared, right? It's when they're showing signs that they're afraid that you say, don't be afraid. It's okay. Jacob's afraid. And God sees it. He knows it. And the fact is, Jacob has reason to be afraid. Think about all that Jacob has to fear here. For one thing, this old man, he's 130 years old at this point. If you're you're in your 60s, close to retirement maybe, That's like midlife to Jacob. That's just the halfway, you know, halfway point. And this 130-year-old man takes his whole big family, and they're about to journey more than 250 miles from Hebron to Egypt. I Google mapped it. 250 miles. It's about the distance from here to Washington, D.C. But... There's no driving option here, right? As a matter of fact, when I Google mapped it, it, did, it, all it gave you was the option to click on the little airplane. You couldn't click on the little walking guy. There's no walking option. People assume you're not going to walk from here to Washington, D.C., or from Hebron, that is, to Egypt. These folks were walking from Hebron to Egypt. They had wagons, sure, but it was at least a six-day journey, a week-long hike. And it's not just a hike, they're moving. Imagine the trauma of this for a man of this age with that big of a family. He's ready to die at this point. Now he finds out, I'm moving to a new place. To start a new life in a new country. 
This huge family is about to become immigrants again. They're becoming sojourners again. In fact, they're not just immigrants, they're refugees at this point. They're fleeing from famine. Many of us here come from immigrant families. And, and, and I'm astounded, especially as I've gotten older, my family has gotten bigger. I, I think I appreciate more the risk that was taken by my family to leave their home country and come here with a bunch of kids, no money. Many of you share the same experience. I'm astounded by the courage that that takes. I, I salute you, in fact. But it's no wonder that Jacob's afraid. And, and to make matters worse, think about what Jacob is leaving behind here. Jacob is leaving behind the promised land. That was the real estate that God had promised to his father Isaac and to his grandfather Abraham. It took centuries of sojourning to get there, to finally take ownership of that land, and now he's going to leave it behind with no one to guard it or keep it for him. And to make matters worse, listen to what God said to uh, Isaac about 100 years earlier. This is, he's speaking to Jacob's father. This is Genesis 26, 2. And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. God had told his dad, don't go to Egypt. Stay in the promised land. Now Jacob's being told, pick up and go to Egypt. Leave the promised land. All the more fear. No wonder he's scared. No wonder Jacob needed God to meet him in Beersheba and speak these words of comfort to strengthen him. Don't be afraid. Go down to Egypt. I will make you into a great nation there. I myself will go down with you, and I will also bring you up. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. You see, Jacob had so many reasons to be afraid, but he had even better reasons to trust in God. In the face of those fears. See, it's not like the fears would just go away, but he has many reasons to trust in God in the face of those fears. Look at the reasons that God gives him. God says, I'm the God of your fathers. I will go with you. In other words, he's saying, this is who I am. This is what I've promised. Listen to me, Jacob. Listen to me, New Hope. He says to us, this is who I am. This is what I've promised to you. And notice, he doesn't say to Jacob, look, you got this. This is no big deal. He doesn't play down the circumstances. That's how we encourage each other sometimes. I encourage my kids, you got this. It's not that big of a deal. You can do this. God doesn't do that here. He doesn't come to Jacob and say, come on, what are you why are you scared of dying? What are you scared of? Don't worry. In fact, what he says to Jacob is, yes, you are going to die. He says, Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. What does that mean? You're going to die in this place, and your son is going to preside over your dead body. Jacob's not going to come back to the promised land until he's dead, when he goes back to be buried. You see, God's saying to him, you don't got this. It's not a small thing. In fact, Jacob's descendants are going to be in Egypt for 400 years before they ever make it back to the promised land. 
They're going to be there for 400 years, and many of those years, they're going to be there under oppression, slavery, suffering. God's not saying, listen, it's all going to be, everything's going to be fine. You're going to love it there. No, he says, I am going with you. That's the source of hope. And I will bring you back. I will bring this nation back to the promised land. And new hope, I believe these words of comfort are for us. And here's why. Because when God says to Jacob, do not be afraid, I will make you a great nation. He's saying this promise, this promise of my presence with you, it's not just for you, but it's for your entire family. In fact, it's for all your descendants. And that means that it's also a promise for anyone, anyone who has been spiritually grafted into this family by faith in Jesus Christ. For anyone who's been added into this clan because you believed in Jesus Christ, the descendant of Jacob, this promise is for you. This is the very same family to whom God said, in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. He spoke those words to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. And what he's promising with those words, all the nation, earth will be blessed. He's promising that in the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, one day there's going to come forth this new offspring, another son, Jesus Christ himself. That, that, that descendant of Jacob and yet the Son of God himself. And in that Son, Jesus, the blessings, the promises to Jacob would be opened up to the whole earth. You see, the pr promise of God's presence would become a promise to anyone who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord. Through faith in Jesus, you become a part of this blessed, chosen family. And God says to you, I will go down with you and I will bring you up again. Do not fear. In the words of Hebrews 13, 4, if you wanted to take out a, a New Testament version of this, here's how God puts it there. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be present wherever you go. Now that, New Hope, this is true comfort in the face of our fears. So the question is, what are you fearing? What are you afraid of? What gives you anxiety? What robs you of peace? What is it for you? I've noticed that our fears change in different seasons of life. That's been my experience anyway, and I think it's true for most of us. When I was younger, what I really used to fear a lot was rejection. I wanted to be liked, and I wanted to be accepted. And I was afraid, constantly afraid, that I would not be liked, that I would be rejected. And as I got older, that continued to be a fear, but I began to fear rejection less started to wane, but I began to fear other things instead. For instance, I began to fear insignificance. I started to be afraid. What? I became afraid of doing nothing that mattered. What if I live my life and it really doesn't amount to anything? I don't really affect anyone. I don't help anything. What if I live and die and I'm forgotten? 
Then as I got older, I started to fear that less, which I think is a natural result of getting older. But I began to fear failure more. This was replaced. I became afraid of failing as a father, failing as a pastor, failing as a follower of Jesus. So how about you? What do you fear? And, and have your fears changed over the years? If so, what are they now? What are you fearing now? Is it failure that you fear? Is it insignificance that you fear? Rejection? As people get older, um, I haven't gotten to this point yet, but I'm, I'm guessing that this happens as you get older, is they begin to fear change. Change becomes a real source of fear. When you're younger, change is exciting. You want to start new things. In fact, you've got to fight to be content with the things as they are. You want things to constantly. But as you get older, maybe, have you started to see this in your own life? You start to fear big changes. You start to fear death. When you're younger, maybe you don't fear death at all. I think that's the natural pattern, and I think we see this in the life of Jacob even. When he was much younger, Jacob feared rejection. Rejection from his father, for instance. And it actually happened. He was rejected. Neglected by his father. But now, over the years, it's changed. Now what he fears is the prospect of death, perhaps. It's changed, perhaps, that he fears now. Like this huge change of moving from Hebron all the way down to Egypt. In chapters earlier, we saw that he feared the loss of his loved ones. He feared the loss of Benjamin. What do you fear? Is it the loss of someone or something? Is it change? Is it even death? Notice, God doesn't say to Jacob, he doesn't say, listen, whatever you fear most, don't worry, it's not going to happen. It's just your imagination. No, he says, I will go with you. I will go with you. Even if your worst fears become reality, I will be with you. The fact is, the world is a dangerous place, isn't it? The world is a broken place. Disappointment and loss, they await all of us. But the one thing that won't happen, can't happen, is this new hope. It's abandonment from God. God will not abandon you. What won't happen ever is the failure of his promises. And that means that whatever makes us afraid and anxious, God's word to us is the same. He says, remember who I am. Remember what I have promised. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has promised to be present wherever you go, whatever season of life, whatever change, whatever disappointment or challenge, I will go with you. Now, I think we need to pause here before we look at the next two um, meetings. I want us to just think about it for a second. What does it mean that God is present with us? We've talked about this before in the past, but I want to make this clear. So we might wonder, what does it mean that God is with his people Certainly doesn't mean that nothing bad is ever going to happen to us. Look at Jacob. Look at Joseph. Here's how the Bible describes it. In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who, by the way, Jesus had another name. His name was Emmanuel. You know what Emmanuel means? It's God 
with us. His very name communicates to us, I will go with you. The presence of God among us. Jesus in Matthew 28, 20 says, remember, he's sending his disciples out and he's saying, remember, I am with you always, with you always to the end of the age. He's saying, I am with you to guide you, to empower you, to protect you, to use you to carry out your mission. And then soon after that, Jesus ascends from earth to heaven. And in Acts 2, it says that he pours out the Holy Spirit. He pours out the Holy Spirit to live, to dwell in God's people, to be God's presence in us and with us. You see, the Spirit of God is present in you and with you to protect, to guide, to work through you. And not only that, God is present even in your circumstances. He's present. Listen, he's promised that he will, he will make all things work out for your ultimate good. Maybe not your immediate good, but your ultimate good. That means even your suffering, even rejection, all of it. And this isn't some kind of like prosperity theology, right? It's not that kind of thinking that says, trust God and he will make you successful and comfy. Clearly, that's not the case. It's this, it's trust God and even in the midst of your pain, when things are terribly uncomfortable, he will be present. And how he does that is going to look different in different people's lives, isn't it? His presence will look different. So that if he's not present in your life in the same way that he's present in someone else's, that doesn't mean he's abandoned you. His presence in Jacob's life looked very different than his presence in Joseph's life. Their circumstances, their experiences were very different, but God was with both of them. Think about it this way. Let's bring this home a little bit. God will, take one person. God will be present with that person to provide for them the job that they deeply desire. God will be present with them to give them the career that they've always dreamed of and and to use them to accomplish massive good in their field. Yet at the same time, God may be present in another person's life to provide for them, not by giving them the career they dream of, but by caring for them and working in them through unemployment or underemployment. God will be present to be with them and work through them in a job they don't like. But he's just as present there. He'll be present with one person, for instance, to give them the spouse and the kids that they always dreamed of, the kids who love them. And he'll be present with another person to use them in their singleness, to flourish them and help use them to help others flourish. You see, temporally speaking, in the here and now, there's no formula, right? The way that God fulfills this promise to be present will look different from Christian to Christian. And yet, eternally speaking, we all have the same expectation. Eternally speaking, we all have the same hope of his presence. Look at what it says here together in Revelations 21.3. Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He goes on to say that God will wipe away every tear, and he'll take away death. Death will be gone. Mourning will be gone. There will be joy. There will be peace Everything bad will become 
untrue, as someone has said. That's the promise. That's the promise for us, even now in the face of fear. That's the promise that's meant to comfort us, to strengthen you as God's people. Jacob hears that voice of God, and he continues the journey to Egypt. He heads down. He heads down, and it talks about it in verses 5 to 7. It's a family trip. He takes down his whole family, everyone. Later on, the narrator gives us this detailed list, like all the names of these different family members. We're not going to read it. But I think the point for us is to remind us that, first of all, this promise is for the whole family, and God's applying this promise in a very detailed way. He's attentive to the needs of each member of this family. This isn't some kind of vague general promise. But I said Jacob had three encounters here. Let's look briefly at the remaining encounters. The second one. And if we look at these, we're going to see evidence of God's presence. We're going to see just how God was present. The second encounter is the one with Joseph. Look at verse 28 of Genesis 46. It says, He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. And then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. You see God's presence here? You see it? It's all over. God has orchestrated this reunion. The lost boy has returned to his father, and it says he fell on his neck. That's the same language that's used when Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son. It says the son returns, the father runs out to meet him, and he falls on his neck. It sounds dangerous, but it's not. It just means he's hugging him. He's all over this kid. He can't embrace him closely enough. And Joseph weeps. You see the joy there? And, 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 and Jacob says, I'm ready to die. Now Now I'm really ready to die. There, there's satisfaction. It's funny. I mean, Jacob, he still doesn't rejoice. He's still not jumping up and down. It doesn't talk about him crying. It seems like this guy's all cried out. It seems like he's, he's drained himself of tears through all these years of sorrow. At this point, he sees his son. They hug. He says, okay, take me now, Lord. And yet, and yet, what this implies to us, what this communicates, is that there's a deep satisfaction in Joseph. I mean, in Jacob, I mean. There's joy on the one hand, there's satisfaction, there's unity. This broken household has now been bound together. There's closure. That's what the presence of God brings. Let's look at the third encounter, the encounter with Pharaoh. In the beginning of chapter 47, it says that Pharaoh agrees to give Joseph's family the best real estate in Egypt. Look at verse 6. It says, the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. Goshen was like riverfront property. This is right on the Nile. Fertile ground, beautiful view. Probably a mosquito problem, but that goes with the territory. He says, and if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. He says, I'll give give your families jobs. You know, one of the biggest fears when you're moving to a new place, to a new country, right? What's the fear? Am I even going to be able to find work? 
gives him jobs. And it's after this that the old man Jacob, he meets with Pharaoh face to face. We should look at this. This is interesting. Jacob meets with Pharaoh face to face in verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob and stood him before Pharaoh. I think we should, we should have a slide for this, for verse 47, verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Isn't this interesting? Jacob is not the ruler here. Pharaoh is. Jacob's a refugee, but he's an old refugee, and I don't think you can tell this guy anything. He comes into Jacob, into Pharaoh's presence. He says, I'm not bowing. I'm going to bless you. <laughs> Usually the blessing goes from top down, right? Jacob says, I will bless you. He's like this old, dignified old man who's... Maybe he sees Pharaoh as just... He's a ruler, but he's still kind of a kid. And I'll give him a blessing. And then Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And then Jacob blessed Pharaoh once again and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. And then it says, Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded and Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Do you see the presence of God here? God gives Jacob and his family favor with Pharaoh. Through Pharaoh, God hands Jacob the most fertile, desirable land available. And notice, Pharaoh says, it says here that they took possession of the land. He's not just letting them stay there for a while. He's saying, this is yours. It's your possession. This is incredible. You see the abundance of this welcome that they're receiving? The generous kindness that really it's God who's showing. The generous kindness that God is showing to prove to Jacob, I am trustworthy. To prove to us, new hope, I am trustworthy. I will go with you. And before we end, I want us to see just one more thing in this episode. I said before that God gives us this piece of history in order to comfort us in the face of our fears. And I hope that these words do comfort you in the face of your present and future fears. But we also need to see that God gives us this piece of history to comfort us in the face of our failures. In the face of our failures. Listen, Jacob's life was nothing short of hard and tragic. If you read the, his story before this whole Joseph account, you read about what happened to Jacob before all that, he suffered massively. And some of that suffering, a lot of it in fact, was frankly the result of his own sins. The result of his own stupid choices. His lies put him at odds with his twin brother. So his brother wanted him dead. His polygamy led to dysfunction in his family. 
His favoritism for Joseph just worsened that dysfunction. In fact, you could say that his favoritism for Joseph put Joseph in danger and played a, and played a, a role in, in Joseph's tragic experience of getting sold off into slavery. And some of Jacob's oldest sons, they turn out to be liars and conmen, just like him. Jacob had suffered massively, and he, and he stands before Pharaoh, and he says, few and evil have been the days of my years, the days of the years of my life, the days of my sojourn. He's not saying, I've been an evil person. That's not what this means. What he's saying is, my life has been so hard. I have encountered so much evil, and that's true. It's been a hard sojourn, but some of that suffering was a result of other people's sins against him. There's no doubt about that. You can see a lot about that in Genesis 2. You read about what Jacob's uncle Laban did to him in Genesis 29. Awful trick he played on him. Read about what happened to one of Jacob's daughters in Genesis 34. Awful story. We already know what his sons did to him. This man had suffered at the hands of others, but the fact is that much of the suffering he experienced was the result of his own failings, his own sin. And and isn't that true of us too? Isn't some of your suffering and pain the result of your own sin and poor choices? Not all, but some. If so, then this story is a word of comfort to you. Because God's promised presence doesn't just speak to us in our fears, it speaks to us in our failures and in our shame. Do you remember when the Lord spoke to Jacob in Beersheba? He didn't say, listen, if you trust me enough, if you obey enough, I will be with you. You prove yourself faithful, I will prove myself faithful. No, what he says is, I will go with you and bring you back, period, full stop. God is faithful to his covenant promises. And his faithfulness is rooted in his character, his own unchanging character. His faithfulness is rooted in this. He cannot break his promises. His faithfulness is not contingent on your faithfulness. His faithfulness is contingent on Christ's perfect faithfulness on your behalf, in your place. So that if you have entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ, if you've believed in him, then God's covenant promise is true for you in the face of your worst failures. Jacob was not a perfect dad by any stretch. Frankly, he wasn't even a good dad. Not even mediocre. And I read this and it makes me ask the question of myself. I'm going to ask it of you, of those of you who are fathers. How about you? Are you a perfect dad? Good dad, trying to be a good dad, have you failed? Are there failings for which you feel deep remorse and regret? Mothers, for you as well. And this isn't just for parents either. Are there failings that, for which you feel shame, for which you feel remorse? Listen. When God says, I will be present with you wherever you go, he says that as the perfect father. 
You see, the God who says this, he's the father that Jacob never was. He's the father that you've never been and never will be. And as that perfect father, he steps into the mess of this household with all its family sins and with all its deep-seated dysfunction, and he brings blessing. He brings the blessing of reunion, of reconciliation. He provides for them, gives them land and food and favor, and all of it's undeserved. That's the kind of father that God is. He wants to show us what kind of father he is. He's even willing, dads, moms, he's even willing to overrule your flawed parenting and your failures. To bring blessing in spite of your foul-ups. Just like he did for Jacob. Hear that, receive that, if you're weighed down with regret and remorse. So when you think about what it means that the Lord is present with you, Think about the presence of a perfectly wise, loving, generous father. Now I realize some of you don't or you didn't have a father who was wise and loving and generous. Maybe he wasn't present or isn't present. Or maybe his presence scared you, intimidated you. This Lord is the father you didn't have. He is attentive to every detail of your life. Even though he has so many kids, <laughs> he cares for each one. It's hard to take care of a lot of kids. See, taking care of a big family is hard. Even when, you, even when you're, you know, you're, you're doing, trying to do it together, it's hard. It's easy to neglect one or more. <laughs> The Lord never does. The Lord never does. He never loses track of one. I often do. You often, after services, seriously, I don't know if I, I don't, I don't want to call any, out anyone else. I don't know if this happens to anyone else, but sometimes I'm walking around this building saying, has anyone seen my daughter? Because I lost her. I was told to take care of her. She was, her hand was put in mine, and yet I lose track of her. And I usually find someone holding her, and she's fine. I lost Marcos, my youngest son, once at a water park. When I found him, he was in tears, and I said, it's okay, it's okay. It, had been, it was a few minutes, he was gone, he was lost. And I found him, remember this, right? I found him, and I said, it's okay. And he looked at me with this look like, it's okay. It's not okay. <laughs> this is not okay. <laughs> and I was like, I'm here, I'm here for you. And he, looked, he was crying, but the way he looked at me, it was like he was saying, you weren't here a second ago. Don't show up like you were always here. If your dad was neglectful or distracted, when, when that, we might project that onto the Lord, don't we? We project that the Lord is going, he is going to be neglectful, distracted. But he shows us that's not the case. He's attentive, engaged in every detail. If your father was distant and, and demanding, we tend to see God that way too, if that was your experience. May see God as distant, exacting. He wants to see us perform well. He wants us to fulfill our potential. He wants us to make, us make him proud, but that's about it. As if he doesn't care about our joy. I read a quote recently from Austin Rivers. Austin Rivers is a, a NBA, he's a basketball player. He plays for the Los Angeles Clippers. And he's the son of Doc Rivers, 
who used to be a point guard for the New York Knicks back when the Knicks used to make the playoffs. And... <laughs> but Doc Rivers is now the coach of the LA Clippers, so Austin Rivers plays for his dad. His dad's the coach. Listen to what Austin Rivers said. He says, he and I, coach and I, don't know each other like that. He says, we know each other as strictly basketball. This is an interesting father-son relationship. A lot of people on the outside don't understand that because people think we have a relationship like every other father and son. We just don't. Because he's been gone my whole life. And that's fine. You see, Austin sees his dad as a coach. That's all he is. He wants to see me perform well. He wants me to do well for the team, carry my weight. That's where the relationship ends. Doc Rivers is concerned more with Austin Rivers' jump shot than with his joy, than with his heart. But in this episode of Joseph's story, we get a portrait of a different kind of father altogether. Not Jacob, another father. The one whose sovereign presence is promised to all his people. Who cares not just about your performance. Who cares for you and has promised you eternal joy in his presence. Let that comfort you in your fears. Let that comfort you in your failures. Let's pray. Father, you have told us that you've loved us with a never-ending love. Spirit, would you take that truth and bury it so deep in our hearts and in the face of every fear and every failure. The first thing that will come to mind is this. My Father is here. He is with me. He loves me. And what Christ has done for me has secured that relationship eternally. In Jesus' name, amen.